Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I am Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you today. Um, that is <laughs> not the correct one. That may have been the one for youth. It's there. It's there. It's just black and white. Um, sorry. Sorry for the podcast. A bit of a slide mix up. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so we can know you better. And we pray you open it to our hearts and pray that you open up our hearts to what you have to say to us today. And we pray so in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I was going to apologize about the slides anyway. Normally, I like to have like a picture of a woodcut or something kind of fancy up there, but they're just black and white today. So when they come up, you'll be disappointed. Um, So my apologies, unless you're listening on the podcast, in which case they were amazing. And of all the weeks you could have missed... You really missed out, so do better. Um, We're carrying on our study of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And last week, Daryl gave us some background uh, of the events leading up to Paul's imprisonment when he wrote this letter um, and his opening greeting to the Philippians in that letter. And we're looking at these next nine verses as we continue to progress through here. And because Daryl got to do some background, I want to do some background as well. I love that stuff. And you know how I like historical background, and I find that that really helps when I'm engaging with scriptural text as well. Um, I find it helpful to know where the places are we're talking about and, uh, and the fact that they really existed in the real world in a three-dimensional way in time and not just sort of in a book we read. So Philippi is in Macedonia, and I'll... Uh, any chance those are... N- not at all? All right, okay. Well... <laughs> Picture a map of Greece, okay? Um, Well, I'll do that next time I'm up here. Um, Macedonia is kind of northern Greece. Um, If you happen to know what the the European map looks like in your head, you've kind of got Turkey and Asia Minor on one side, on the the east, and then you've got Greece as sort of the gateway uh, into the west there. And Macedonia is is the closest, Macedonia and Thrace is sort of the closest part of Greece to Asia Minor, to the Turkish region. And uh, that's interesting to me, and that's interesting historically. And Macedonia is mostly famous for two men historically. Um, Both of those men lived in the intertestamental period. That is the the period of 400 years between the New New Old and the New Testaments. Um, And we might remember that the Old Testament ends, uh, its narrative ends with books like uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, The Israelites return to Israel. The Jews return to Judea um, after exile after the Persians, who were the empire at the time, gave them permission. And at that time, uh, around 400 BC, um, all these sort of Greek states, Athens and Macedon and Corinth and Sparta, they were all these just little city-states that got together occasionally to defend themselves or to have little wars against each other, but they weren't a great imperial power. They didn't really encroach into the east. They didn't really go uh, into uh, into the area in which Christ came and would come and live and die. And the, the the story of God's work in the world uh, in the Old Testament played out. They weren't part of that Eastern world. And every now and then they would have those conflicts among themselves, in Athens and Sparta particularly, had a lot of blood spilt between them, and they'd strong-arm the other states into fighting for each other and, or fighting against each other. And You might remember, if you love the Old Testament like I do, and I hope you do, um, there's kind of the succession of kingdoms that we see happen through the Old Testament history. God leads his people... Uh, Out of slavery in Egypt, he sets them up in their own kingdom, effectively, in Israel. 
Uh, and then things start going downhill reasonably quickly because they're not that good at maintaining their own kingdom. They keep falling to idolatry, and when they fall to idolatry, they abandon the promise of security that God gives them. So they fall to idolatry under King Solomon pretty quickly, and then after that, it breaks into two kingdoms. Israel breaks up. You end up with Israel and Judah, two different kingdoms. Uh, Judah remains mostly faithful at that time, and Israel does not. And then the Assyrian Empire, which is kind of northern Iraq, um, jumps up, and they conquer most of that ancient world, and they flatten Israel. They wipe Israel off the map, and so only Judah remains. The tribe of Judah then becomes the principal surviving vessel for God's people. That's why they end up being called the Jews from Judah as opposed to the Israelites from Israel. So the Assyrian Empire stops short of Jerusalem. They can't defeat Judah. And eventually God uses Babylon, this new empire, to come in and crush the Assyrians. And Babylon is the big fish in the ancient world at that time. And then not long after that, the kingdom of Judah have become corrupted enough um, that God decides he is going to uh, reverse what he did, leading his people out of Egypt into the promised land. He takes them from the promised land into captivity in Babylon. Takes them out of the promised land into this empire of Babylon. They get conquered. Then eventually, as we keep progressing through the narrative, we get the story of Daniel. And um, During this time of Daniel, the Babylonians get conquered by the Persians. And the Persians are the next big guys on the block, and they are uh, the big enemy uh, for a lot of the regions in the place. But they become friendly to the Jews after a while, and they permit the Jews to go back to their homeland. That's the Ezra and Nehemiah story. Then your Old Testament kind of stops, goes quiet, and we pick up 400 years later with the birth of Christ and those events. But things, of course, happen in that 400 years, and they kind of matter a little bit. Uh, Like the Persians had bigger appetites uh, than the Babylonians before them, and they invaded across the Aegean Sea. They invaded into Greece and all these territories. They attacked Athens. They attacked these places where all these churches would eventually be set up in the New Testament. So they, they looked across the sea, and they decided they could get their hooks in there. They invaded Greece a couple of times. The Greeks unite to defend themselves against the Persians. Um, against the first invasion, they eventually turned the tide at a battle called Marathon, which the legends say the greatest distance runner, um, Theodipides, uh, ran 240 kilometers from Athens to Sparta in two days, and then back again in the next two days, and then another 40 kilometers to tell Athens that they'd won and then dropped dead, understandably. Persians come up short, they don't, conquer Mar- they don't conquer Athens, they don't conquer all of Greece, but they do conquer a chunk of northern Greece, including Thrace and Macedon. So Macedon is this area that has been conquered by this eastern power. That world has come in and overlapped them, and overlaps them for 10 years. They're dominated by the Persians. 10 years later, the Persians come to invade again. They really want to succeed at this invasion. If you, they get completely crushed. Um, If you've ever seen the movie 300 or the older classic, The 300 Spartans, that's what happens. Macedon becomes free. The Persian Empire starts to collapse. But Macedon does not forget uh, what the Persians did to them. Macedon remembers. And around 350 BC, in this block of time between the Old and New Testaments, Macedon gets a king called Philip II, Philip of Macedon. And Philip revolutionizes the infantry warfare. He beats up. Uh, Macedon's neighbors, he forces the Greek states into a coalition to help him. And his ultimate goal is to go back across the sea to smash the Persian Empire that once occupied Macedon. One of the cities that he conquers on his way there, part of the northern area, which is still in Macedon as a total territory, but he conquers it personally, is called Crinides. And Crinides means springs like springs of water. 
But this city has a lot of gold mines nearby, so he conquers it, he fortifies it, he invests in it, and renames it after himself, Philippi. And that's where Philippi is. Now, Philip ends up getting assassinated um, by a traitor, but his more ambitious son, Alexander, would accomplish his dream. Alexander the Great, he crosses the sea, he invades Persia and most of the rest of the world at that time, of the known world, uh, until he's, taking, he's conquered so far, he's taking bites out of the side of India. The Greek colonies begin springing up in the wake of this conquest and imposing their ways on these eastern regions. And by the time we get to the New Testament, when the Romans have finally conquered that empire, they've only done that fairly recently. And everyone still speaks Greek. All the cities have Greek names. Um, they all uh, use the same written Greek language to communicate. Uh, the gods that the Gentiles are concerned about are the Greek gods, not the ancient uh, Asian gods in that area. Um, New Testament is written in Greek. All of the cities have a Greek gymnasium and Greek agoras, and because of this, they have a lot of common culture. Because God used Macedon to impose on this area a kind of a common history that allowed the early church to have many places to take root. Despite how many of these uh, nations remained, they had a common enough language and culture that Paul and Barnabas and the early disciples could go and plant churches and write letters and support one another and do so within a common language and with enough cultural touchstones, enough cultural um, common ground, that the church actually survived and thrived in these areas rather than in, say, in India or in Central Africa where missionaries went, but the gospel would take a much longer time to really take root. That's a long way of saying that it's funny to me, and I think it's funny in general, when you see things how God has done them, that Philip and Alexander, these ancient warrior kings of Macedon, who prayed to pagan gods and sought glory for themselves, they waged a war to create this Greek Macedonian empire that bridged the east and west and lasted about 200 years. But what they really did, unbeknownst to them, was they laid clear the ground and they paved the way for an empire of love that follows the king of heaven that has lasted 2,000 years and still lasts today, having started in places like Jerusalem and Antioch and Philippi and can now reach every corner of the world. They had no idea that there were instruments that God was using to secure his early church. So that's the deal with Philippi. Philippi is part of Macedonia, the kind of junction between the east and west. It's about the, probably the first place that Paul preached on the European landmass. He's entering a whole new world when he goes there. And anyway, we're working through the early parts of this letter and these nine verses from 3 uh, to 11. And they uh, tell us kind of in three portions where Paul's head is at immediately, what he is trying to, uh, to help, and, uh, help them with and warn them about. He tells them first that he thanks God for them and how much he misses them. And then finally, he tells them what he is praying for them and after these verses and the passages to come, we'll hear a lot more about what Paul's been building up to. He's reassuring them, these Philippians, his friends, that being incarcerated, being in prison, is not a sign that God has abandoned him. It's not an end of the ministry. It's just God's next step in this kind of exciting journey of bringing the gospel to the nations. And so these nine verses, they showcase Paul's ministry heart, even in the circumstance uh, that looks so dark from the outside as he prepares to console them more directly. And so the first chunk is kind of verses three to six, and they go like this. 
I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So they're a source of joy for him. And why wouldn't they be? It seems that Paul and his companions, they founded this Christian community in Philippi. And as they did, this was Paul's first experience preaching to these new Gentiles in the European continent. They represent the first fruits of the Gentiles of a a whole world of nations uh, who had been kind of estranged from the God of the Bible for thousands of years. They heard him preach and they formed this community. They were filled with the spirit and God's driving inspiration to spread that gospel further. And they did. And Philippi is going on to be outstandingly blessed as a city in the next couple of hundred years because of the way that they love and they're devoted to the gospel. Um, The community of believers goes strong there. Even a few centuries later, there are enormous cathedrals that get built there that eventually get uh, destroyed in later wars. But it's a true kind of heartland of Christianity at the time. Now, in one sense, when Paul says about the completion of this work, he might be talking about, in a secondary sense, the completion of this evangelizing of the new lands, of going into Europe, seeing new nations, bringing the gospel there to the people who desperately need to hear it. But principally, Paul's talking about what we call sanctification. When he says the good work that has begun in you, he doesn't mean so much amongst the people as much as he means in the hearts of all believers. The process of making them more perfect and ultimately Christ-like for the day of judgment when all the saints are called home. So the written part of that assurance uh, is, is this assurance of what is to come, and the unwritten part is the thought that Paul is implying to them. Don't be afraid, even though it looks like I'm suffering, even though I'm here in this jail cell. Even if I were to die in this jail cell, the one who is doing the work in you is God, and he will complete his work. God doesn't need Paul's permission or Paul's effort. God will accomplish his will. Paul is just the servant that he chooses to use up until now. So verses 7 and 8 come next. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long, or how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves these people. He longs to be with them in case we're in danger of thinking of Paul as knowing the early churches kind of like we know them as sort of participants in in an ancient letter distant from us so we don't really know. Um, Paul is genuinely, emotionally, and heart-filled invested with these guys. Um, These are people who sent him visitors and gifts to get him through his time in jail. Uh, They know him by name. They fear for him when he's in danger. They love him as their spiritual brother, and they know him as kind of the spiritual father of uh, of their church community. And so he tells them wherever he goes under whatever circumstance, he has them in his heart and that he is doing uh, his work and that they are taking part in that with him. Now, I'm not sure there's a big theological point to make there more than the sentimental one. Sometimes it's nice to remember that Paul has real emotions and people he cares about, not just ministry projects. Uh, Sometimes the distance from him in time can make him seem less than human. Finally, and worth most of our attention, are verses 9 to 11. And they go like this. This is Paul's prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul has kind of a habit in Scripture of starting a sentence and not quite knowing how he's going to get to the end of it. And they sort of ramble a little bit, and sometimes they're hard to tease apart. So it's worth pulling this one apart into those individual three verses. First verse there, he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And that's an interesting thing for Paul to say. He speaks to the Philippians in such glowing terms about his personal love for them and his appreciation for what they do and their participation in advancing the gospel. Uh, he knows they are a loving people. He's not uh, exactly here praying for them to increase in love. He's praying that their love, as it increases, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And the Christian term we use for that kind of thing is often discernment for depth of insight. Knowledge is understanding of what something is, and discernment is being able to tell the difference between that and other things. It's the two tools you need to navigate a complex situation. He wants their love to be tempered by wisdom. Now, why would he say that? He hasn't said anything in this letter and won't say later to suggest that he thinks that they are generally foolish, that they're lacking in wisdom in some big deficiency. He's only sung their praises, but remember the circumstances of this letter. Paul is in prison. And his friends in the church are truly afraid for him and what fate might bring to him. He's important to them and they have a lot of love for him. But he's trying to reassure them. Not that he's going to be okay necessarily, because at some point he will die in prison in his life. He knows that and he expects it. Not as much as he is trying to reassure them that even if things aren't okay, God still reigns. And that's the knowledge they are missing. They need to temper their love. He will finish the work that he has begun in them, with or without Paul's direct involvement. He's saying that we will all see each other again and be complete on that day of Jesus Christ. He wants them to temper their love for him with knowledge and discernment that will allow them to see his suffering like he sees his own suffering, as one step on his journey, as a tool that God uses. And this isn't a little thing that's easy for people necessarily to grasp. Because this concerns people really understanding and internalizing and gripping the idea that there is a life after this one where God's work in us will be complete, will be raised up, there is a judgment. We really are living for a new day to come. And our church in the Western world and our civilization and those who've come before us even have been telling us for 2,000 years that this is true. We've got lots of reminders about it. It's pretty well bolted down in our culture that after we die there is a heaven where we'll see those we love again in one form or another. That we'll all be swept up into the final judgment, resurrected before the throne. God will sort out those who embraced their sin and corruption and uh, those who embraced their savior and the damned will go to damnation and hell and the saved will go to the glorious eternity in the kingdom of God. That structure, that framework has been baked into our culture so deeply that when Daffy Duck gets blown up by a barrel of TNT, he, grows up, he spontaneously spawns a halo and starts flying up towards heaven. It's just there, even in irrelevant non-religious contexts. Uh, being stuck in traffic is hell to some people. Eating a particularly good donut is heaven. The assumption of, and the language of the afterlife is bolted on to our culture and our words and our worldview so much that even people who don't believe it, believe it. 
People who don't believe in the kingdom of God and will refuse to talk about religion will nonetheless talk about how they feel their lost loved ones are looking down on them from somewhere and smiling. Our trouble is more in our time of getting people to think about this stuff as a real three-dimensional reality where we one day actually will go and not just kind of a cartoon version of the afterlife where, um, which happens to other people maybe when they get old and die, unlike me who will never get old and die. But the ancient Macedonians, the ancient Greeks, they didn't quite think like that. Like the other Greeks and the, and the Romans after them, they were told about there was a realm of the dead where souls would probably go and be sorted and uh, the really good, heroic and virtuous folks would be selected by the gods to go to Elysium where they'd kind of do more or less the same things they did in life before. And worse folks go to worse places and all of this is, is, is sorted out by the gods. But ultimately ends up in everyone ending up as dreary, ghostly copies of themselves doing the thing they otherwise did forever. That's not the same as heaven. It's sort of a poetic cop-out of saying, whatever you were doing in life, maybe there's more of that on the other side, just thinner. And importantly, the Greeks didn't have someone come back from the dead to promise them their salvation. Not until Jesus came along and promised it to everyone. These places that they believed in before, they were run by the Greek gods, and the Greek gods were kind of cruel and sometimes foolish, and they made mistakes, and you couldn't really hold them to account or expect them necessarily to be good. They fought each other. They did all kinds of weird stuff. What it was definitely not was a promise of being called a son or a daughter of God and experiencing God's finishing his work in you so that you become the perfected version of yourself that God intended and living forever as that perfected version of yourself in love and worship of the God who would sacrifice to save you. The God who made the world being the same God as that, the God whose plans stretch from the beginning of time to the end. Our idea of the afterlife is more clear and bright and has these hard lines to bound it, and it has an assurance for those who follow Jesus. The Philippians, up until they heard the gospel, were just trying to please the gods and hope for the best if they were really there. That's it. But Paul taught them the truth that he himself had learned in total clarity from Jesus, that there is a day that is coming where all the dead will rise up again, and Paul says they need to prepare for that day. One needs not only love to prepare for that day, but also to be abounding in knowledge and discernment so that, as verse 10 and 11 say, so that you may be able to discern, well, verse 10 says for a start, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You may be able to discern what is best and that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If they have knowledge of what is ultimately to come and they can discern what is right from wrong, then they can live their lives fearlessly pursuing what is good and right and what God wants for them. Whether that be imprisonment and martyrdom, as Paul expects and will eventually get for himself, or something else, love alone would lead people who love Paul to despair over his situation. But love with knowledge and discernment, well, they can pity the pain that he goes through, but they can respect and honor that this too is a tool of God for God's purposes, and not to be feared and hated. And having lived a, uh, a life guided by love, Tempered by that wisdom, they can finally stand before God in the final day, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.
For Paul to be locked up for no real crime is not justice. It's uh, not a noble action for the magistrates to take, but Paul knows that ultimately traveling the path that God has laid out for him through storms and shipwrecks and the loss of friends and the loss of his honor through imprisonment and beatings and eventually death is righteous because God laid out that path for him and called it righteous. And the proof that God laid out uh, is that God laid out a path of suffering for his own son, Jesus, to walk all the way to the cross and he is the son of righteousness the righteous son of God who we are preparing to imitate ourselves. That kind of life, lived faithfully, brings glory to God. And that's the truth about love. Love is the greatest of virtues, and Paul says so himself in uh, Corinthians 13 and many other places. Uh, It's the godliest thing that we can be is loving. But love doesn't stand alone as the only part of the Christian life. We're not being Christ-like if we make every decision in our life based on love alone. Our love needs to have knowledge of the things of God and discernment in the world to produce this righteousness in us. And these things are woven together in us and grown by the Holy Spirit inside the believers, but it's also something we have to practice, which is why Paul's encouraging them by telling them what he's praying for here. The process of tempering love with knowledge and discernment is something that Christians have called for a long time discipleship. It's something all of us need to invest ourselves in, and we all know where we've lapsed in that. Whether our Bible reading has fallen off, or we don't pray like we used to, or we stopped going to a connect group for some reason and then never quite came back. We don't need to be reminded necessarily that we'll be raised up from the dead again. We know that pretty well, but the reminder's there. But we could all use a reminder pretty constantly, that our purpose as believers is to serve God. And the way we serve him best is by being these active, devoted disciples, doing what we should but often fail to do, to grow in love and with that to abound in that knowledge and that discernment. And if we do that, then we will see the fruit of righteousness build up in our life and we'll be ready for the day when we do meet our Savior face to face to praise him and worship him forever. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the price that he paid and for the eternal future he paid for, for those who call him Lord. We ask you to continue your work in us as you do in all your servants, perfecting and growing us. And particularly, Lord, we ask that you help us like the Philippians needed to grow in love, abounding in knowledge and discernment. Help us to feel your heart and to know how to live according to the love that is most righteous in the world. Convict our hearts of what we must do with our lives as disciples to follow you better. Remind us again of the habits that we've let slip or that we've let grow stale and require challenge. Guide us in your ways so that when the final day does come, We can stand before you with that harvest of righteousness, fit to bring glory and praise to the King of kings. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.